Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. Front row seats, President Trump says... He'd love to attend his own impeachment trial and a supreme scolding. Chief Justice John Roberts tells impeachment teams on both sides of the aisle to remember where they are. And Saudi Arabia denies it hacked Jeff Bezos' phone after reports linked it all to the crown print. It is Wednesday and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move, coming to you live from here in New York and also the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where we have our Julia Chatterley. We'll be going to her in just a moment. But first, let's look at the global markets for you. U.S. stocks are on track for a solidly higher open. After falling from record highs in a previous session, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are set to bounce back into record territory in early trading today. You see the Dow futures up there, 71 points. Stocks actually fell across the globe on Tuesday amid fears about the spread of the coronavirus in Asia. Airline stocks were actually very hard hit by all of that. But Asian stocks, let's see here, bounce back in today's sessions. Hong Kong stocks were the biggest gainers, wiping out much of Tuesday's losses. In the meantime, stocks are trading mostly lower in Europe. President Trump said that during his trip to Davos that he's ready to slap tariffs, auto tariffs specifically, on European car makers if he's unable to reach a trade agreement with the EU. Investors are also focused on earnings. Shares of Netflix and IBM are higher in pre-market trading after reporting their latest results. We'll have more on all of that, specifically Netflix, later on in the show. But first, let's get right to the drivers and uh, the latest on Davos, President Trump is on his way back to Washington right now after attending the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He held a series of meetings with world leaders, including Iraq's president today. And just before his departure, just before leaving, the president held a press conference slamming the impeachment trial against him. He even suggested he might turn up for the hearings in the Senate uh, at the same time, rubbishing the proceedings as well. We need to listen to this. Sort of love sit right in the front row and stare at their corrupt faces. I'd love to do it. I don't know. Don't don't keep talking because I may you may convince me to do it. And I think the other side has so lied. I watched the lies from Adam Schiff. He'll stand, he'll look at a microphone and he'll talk like he's so aggrieved. These two guys, these are major sleazebags. They're very dishonest people. Very, very dishonest people. So, as expected there, the U.S. president admonishing the Republican, or rather the impeachment trial against him. Julie Chatley is in Davos with the latest. So, Julie, just in terms of the economic headlines to come out of that speech, he said the EU is actually harder to do business with than China. And he dangled the threat of tariffs yet again. Just walk us through that. Perhaps even more stubborn 
is uh, actually the word he was looking for, as Zane, you and I can debate that at a, at a different time. But there really is a, a tale of two halves, I think, if you look at the two days that the US president spent here at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Yesterday, we had the undercurrents, of course, of what was going on back home, the impeachment trial. But it did feel like the president was messaging to the domestic audience about the US economy. Then take a look at what he was doing today. He met with the Iraqi president, of course. He also threatened them potentially and didn't take the potential tariffs off the table from the Iraqis in light of what we saw over the last few weeks and the threat that they perhaps could push for U.S. troops to leave more quickly than planned. Europe, of course, is a separate issue, fresh from signing that NAFTA Mark II and, of course, the phase on trade deal with China. No real surprise here, I think, that he decides to turn his attention back to Europe and start threatening and positioning ahead of the broader battle with the EU here. You know, we're talking about a number of different nations not just one. So there's whole different viewpoints to come into play. Not an easy position to negotiate with or against, quite frankly, as far as the, you're the US president. But, you know, I think the underlying current here and I think the talk after his leaving Davos is about the US economy and about the relative strengths. I was on a, a panel earlier today with Joe Kaiser, the Siemens boss, and he said, look, you know, he was speaking with the US president last night. And again, you can only commend him for the strength of the US economy and the kind of growth and conditions that actually most other countries around the world would boast. So yes, we can talk about other things like sustainability, about climate change. And again, you can disagree with the person here in the US president. But when you look at the economic backdrop here, um, the president does have a hand of cards. So perhaps no surprise that he decided to focus on that, even if he did suggest he might uh, surprise us all and turn up at his own impeachment trial. I don't think anyone's envious of the situation he finds himself in, d deserved or not. He came, he saw, he spoke, and now he's left and he goes back to bigger battles, I think, in D.C., Zane. Yeah, certainly touting his economic achievements. Julia Tatterley, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, the impeachment trial of President Trump resumes in just a few hours from now. Arguments to set the rules of the trial went well into the night Tuesday with the Republicans blocking Democrat uh, amendments. I want to bring in Lauren Fox, who joins us live now. So, uh, Lauren, uh, Representative Jerry Nadler actually said something very interesting. He said the president is on trial in the Senate but the Senate is on trial with the American people. Just given the level of distrust, division, partisanship, what does a full and fair impeachment trial here actually look like? Well, Zane, yesterday you saw the House managers, the Democrats making this case that the president needs to be impeached. The case you saw them making essentially was, look, Senate, you have an opportunity here to get more information, to get more documents, to get more witnesses. You have an opportunity to show the American people what they need to know, and you should take it. Now, remember, yesterday was all about debating the rules that will govern this trial, and Democrats offered 11 amendments to change the rules, to get more witnesses, to get more documents from the Office of Management and Budget and the State Department, as well as the White House. And what they saw every time was Republicans blocking their changes. So the case that they were making yesterday was really to those four Republican moderate senators that they are trying to win over. So when the vote on witnesses comes at the end of the presentations of evidence from both sides and at the end of senators' questions, perhaps they'll be able to convince some of the Republicans to vote with them. They know that the outcome of this trial 
trial isn't going to remove the president from office. The votes aren't there. So the case that they're really making, the case you've seen them make on the floor, has been one in which they are trying to pressure those four Republican moderates to get on board with finally approving witnesses like John Bolton and like Mick Mulvaney, the president's acting chief of staff. Zane? So, Lauren, if there ends up being no witnesses called, uh, no House evidence used, and everyone basically knows that the president is likely going to be acquitted in all of this, how invested is the average American in the outcome of this trial, given that it does seem to be, to some degree, uh, predetermined? Well, I think that most Americans watching at home probably weren't tuned in for the entire marathon that we saw yesterday. Remember, they gaveled in at 1 p.m. yesterday afternoon. They didn't leave the chamber until 2 a.m. in the morning. Of course, there were a couple of breaks in there for dinner and using the restroom from some of those senators where they actually got to get up out of their seats. But remember that they were really stuck on the floor for 12 plus hours yesterday. So I think for the average American who's watching back home, they're tuning in and out of this trial. And I'll tell you that senators started to fade by the end of the night. You know, some senators were just falling asleep on the Senate floor. You had others who really gave up that no talking rule and were moving to the back corners of the chamber to have quiet conversations with their colleagues. You saw people passing notes. I think, you know, the American people may not be that invested in every moment of this trial. And I'll tell you, the senators are really trying to pay attention, but it's very difficult when you are in that chamber for 12 hours listening to a case that has really been in the public discourse over the last four months, Zane. And just in terms of what we're expecting today, it's set to kick off again in about uh, three and a half, four hours from now or so. We're set to hear Democrats opening arguments. Just walk us through what the next 12 hours hold. Well, there is a deadline at 9 a.m. this morning, so just a few minutes ago, for both sides to file any new motions that they want as part of today and Saturday's opening arguments on each side, respectively. You also have another deadline at 11 a.m. where each side can respond to the other one's motions. Expect that to come at 11 a.m., then at 1 o'clock, they gavel in again for opening arguments from the House managers, the Democrats who will make the case that it's time for the president to be removed from office. Zane? And Lauren, just um, I've, I've just been told that we have run out of time, so I'll save that question for another time. Lauren Fox, live for us there. Thank you so much. Saudi Arabia has denied hacking the phone of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. Uh, a source says a team working for the billionaire concluded with a, quote, medium to high probability that the attack originated from an account controlled by the crown prince. Nina Dos Santos joins us live now. So, Nina, just what more do we know here? Well, what we know is that at the top of this hour, the United Nations that um, a number of months ago uh, set a special team of rapporteurs to look into this subject, into the killing of Jamal Khashoggi uh, and why he was targeted, appear to have confirmed this uh, private intelligence report that Jeff Bezos had commissioned himself into the hacking of his own phone. That was the one that concluded with medium to high probability that Jeff Bezos may have been hacked via a message that was sent via WhatsApp in the form of a video file from a phone linked to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman himself. All this dates back to April 2018, when it appears as though the Amazon founder um, met the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia in Los Angeles uh, as part of a charm offensive and potential investment um, 
tour that the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince was undertaking at the time uh, in Hollywood, and they exchanged telephone numbers. And then soon after, he began receiving messages from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. A number of months afterwards, he then appears to have received this video file. And thereafter, according to this intelligence report commissioned, as I said, by Bezos, uh, it appears as though the Amazon founder's uh, phone started sending large amounts of data back to Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, just to give you some lines from this report, as I'm reading it for the first time in the last couple of minutes, um, this panel of experts calls for a full investigation into allegations that the Saudi crown prince was involved in the hacking of Jeff Bezos's phone. Uh, they say the information that we receive suggests the possible involvement of the crown prince in surveillance of Mr. Bezos in an effort to influence, if not silence the Washington Post reporting on Saudi Arabia. Now, why is this important? Well, because at this very time, Jeff Bezos employed one of the most prominent Saudi Arabian dissenting voices in the form of Jamal Khashoggi, who then went on to disappear, and eventually it was found that he'd been killed in the Saudi Arabian uh, consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. What's also interesting about the story that was first broken by The Guardian earlier today uh, in the UK is that it, to a certain extent, corroborates findings that we at CNN have already reported on uh, about a year ago when it was found that Jamal Khashoggi's own messages, about 456 of them, may have been intercepted by Saudi Arabia itself because they were already hacking the WhatsApp communications of another Saudi Arabian dissident who'd been given asylum in Canada. So very worrying uh, situations here in terms of sort of internet security, communication security, and, and very much who could be at risk and where some of these messages could be coming from. This is very much the top of the corporate tree and also the crown prince of a sovereign country. Um, I should point out that Saudi Arabia's embassy in Washington, D.C. has called these reports earlier in the day absurd and flatly denied this. Of course, that statement was made before the United Nations threw their weight behind these allegations. Zane? Nina Santos, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, these are the stories that are making headlines around the world. Venezuela's opposition leader Juan Guaido has told CNN he won't take part in talks with embattled President Nicolas Maduro. He said Mr. Maduro had killed any dialogue by blocking a free election. It's been a year since Juan Guaido declared himself interim president of Venezuela, but he hasn't been able to break the Maduro government's grip on power. The Monty Python star Terry Jones has died age 77, according to PA Media citing a family statement. Uh, he passed away at his London home with his wife by his side. The comedy icon had been suffering from a rare form of dementia called FTD. In China, the coronavirus death toll has risen to nine. Beijing has confirmed more than 400 cases. The US reported its first patient on Tuesday. Cases have also been reported in Japan, Thailand and South Korea. The virus originated in the city of Wuhan, CNN's David Culver is there. Behind the police tape, this normally crowded market in the central China city of Wuhan sits eerily desolate. This is ground zero for the illness sparking global unease. So this is where authorities believe the source of the coronavirus is. It's the wildlife and seafood market. And you can perhaps see over there, it's cordoned off. You've got police at all the corners. It is so sensitive that within minutes of us arriving and recording, security asked us to stop filming. There is an uneasiness felt throughout Wuhan. We experienced that as soon as we boarded the train from Beijing. Each car nearly full, most faces covered. Just about everyone traveling home for the Lunar New Year. Strict screening upon arrival. One by one, passengers step through a thermometer check. 
make sure they are not bringing a fever with them. Scenes like this playing out in transportation hubs across China. The virus was being spread mainly through respiratory transmission and is likely to mutate, which will increase the risk of epidemics spreading. In addition, the Spring Festival travel rush saw a mass migration of people and that has objectively increased the risk of epidemics spreading and the difficulties in taking effective preventative and control measures. We should always be on high alert and never take this lightly. Behind me, this is one of a few hospitals here in the region that's dedicated to treating some of those who are either confirmed cases or suspected cases of the coronavirus. Out front, you've got a few staff members who we notice are all wearing masks. Some of them are even wearing protective gloves just to prevent any potential exposure. It's brought the normally festive holiday mood in Wuhan to a halt, and it's cut down this vendor's business. This year, the pneumonia situation is getting serious, so there are not so many people coming here to buy goods. She's from a city that's about two hours' drive from Wuhan. She's got her mask nearby, and she admits she's worried. And so, too, is her daughter and other relatives. They were asking me to go back home, but I can't leave with all my inventory here. I've already bought these goods. I have no choice, and I have to stay here and resign myself to my fate. Other vendors more hopeful. This woman telling me she does not feel the need to wear a mask. Maybe I am having a positive outlook. I have been checking online instructions on Baidu, like drinking more water or washing your hands more frequently. I think that should be fine. The unknowns looming over a city with a rising death toll. Unclear what's next for Wuhan and the 11 million people who call it home. David Culver, CNN, Wuhan, China. All right. Hong Kong is in crisis mode following the coronavirus outbreak. Coming up on First Move, how those fears are being heard in Davos. And Netflix is feeling the pressure. How the streaming giant is competing against new domestic rivals, Disney and Apple. That's next. Welcome back to Davos, the World Economic Forum, of course, live from Switzerland all this week. We're midway through the week. We've seen a whole host of politicians, world leaders, business leaders gathering here. And I think everyone in particular this time around waiting to hear from one particular woman. I'm talking about the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam. She spoke today, the world watching, I think, to hear what next for the region. They're also, of course, uh, on high alert over the coronavirus. 479 people have been infected worldwide. Hong Kong, just a two-hour flight away, according uh, across from Wuhan. Let's talk about uh, all of the issues uh, ongoing. Hong Kong's Commerce Secretary Edward Yao joins us now. Great to have you with us. Sir. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Let's just talk about the preparations mm-hmm. as far as you can that the government's making at this stage. Oh, uh, well, I think the, um, the whole world is uh, sort of very cautious of this new epidemic and Hong Kong being so close to the mainland. So we have, in fact, put in high alert. And there are some contingency plans uh, already put in place uh, to guard against sort of uh, uh, the, the spreading of epidemic. Uh, well, some people may re- remember, uh, well, uh, some, some years ago, we had this yeah. SARS, and which was a bitter experience. But it, that also gave, uh, gave us some sort of a, uh, arrangement that, well, in case uh, similar things spread, then, well, we have a plan there. So I understand my colleagues, uh, the health officials are already sort of uh, in full gear uh, 
uh, sort of gearing up for this uh, uh, case. So we have uh, the detection, and, and so far I think uh, uh, cases are, could be easily detected uh, at all the entry points, and uh, if in doubt, and they will be sent to hospital for checking, and there are some quarantine arrangements uh, to be put in place if necessary. But the underlying message here is... We're prepared and we're being proactive here. Yes, yes. And also well, the public will also need to be, uh, uh, be mindful. conscious, yeah, mind, mindful of the hygiene and also uh, be aware of the, uh, the development. Fantastic. I want to uh, move on and talk about mm -hmm. Hong Kong's representation mm -hmm. here in Davos, the biggest contingent, I believe, for, for 20 years, an important time. What is the message at this moment? Because you've said it's 2019 was a, a troubling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. year, yep. the, the protest movement, the trade war, of mm -hmm, course, mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. not only one issue here. Yeah. Have we seen the worst as far as the economy is concerned? I think, well, we are, well, it has been tough in economic terms and we have a setback last year, well, which was uh, the worst in the last uh, decade. Yes. Uh, we, we came from a three years positive growth GDP in 2018, down to sort of minus 1.3, partly uh, because of the US-China trade war, where we suffer from the collateral damage, and also partly because of our own problem, the social unrest that happened yes. in the last uh, six months. So uh, it's, a, it's a double dip. But having said that, I think we are seeing some easing of the signs. First of all, well, delighted to see at least the two big powers sitting together and sign a piece of paper, uh, and people anxious looking at, well, whether that will be put into uh, not just full, but also swift implementation, particularly with the, the taking away of the tariff. Uh, but on the other hand, we are also seeing uh, things quite down uh, and at the home front. Uh, Hong Kong never, never had any problems with uh, demonstration, which is, uh, which are peaceful. But on occasion where people step over the red line, violence, we have to tackle it. But I'm seeing that well, that that part has been sort of subsided a bit. What we saw is the rating agencies' moods mm -hmm. coming out and and directly suggesting that they were less comfortable than they had been with mm -hmm. your governance, with your institutions. One, are they right to question in light of what we saw and the handling of what we saw? And two, what of the business community who know mm -hmm. Hong Kong very well and the importance of it saying to you about that specific thing? I think you, you exactly, you're exactly right. Well, in fact, the people who know Hong Kong best would be international business uh, in Hong Kong, where actually there is a very strong presence of international presence. 9,000 companies, uh, global companies, using Hong Kong as a regional headquarters, which is uh, a historical figure. Mm. Despite things happening, we are on the rise. Uh, we are also seeing a lot of startups coming to Hong Kong. But of course, well, given things happen in Hong Kong, there will obviously naturally be concern and sentiment. They want to know you're in control. Yes, but <laughs> I, I think, well, a different agency might have different perspective. Right. Uh, and, and I hope that, well, in the long term, they see Hong Kong in perspective. But it's wor also worth uh, sort of pointing IMF also do a more comprehensive Article 4 review and uh, looking at this, into the entire system. Their confirmation was Hong Kong is truly a global financial center. And they also give us positive assessment that we have the capability to handle uh, cyclical and also structural challenges that we are facing. So I hope well, that will create a more comfortable backdrop uh, to confirm the business view in Hong Kong. Carrie Lam said here that, that China isn't cracking mm -hmm. down. They're not restricting Hong Kong in any way. And someone also said to me, look, there's uh, one country, two systems. The two sides look at it differently and have different perspectives. Is it in China's interest to protect why Hong Kong is special for their own financial interests, never mind anything else? I think one country, two system has to be looked at in its totality. It's not two systems separate. 
is also not just one country. Mm. I think this uh, arrangement has been unique for Hong Kong and our neighbour Macau. It must be looked at in totality because if you're only looking at Hong Kong as if it's an independent state, sorry, that's not the constitutional arrangement. Yeah. But at the same time, I think uh, from the um, uh, Chinese leadership from uh, in the last 22 years, they have sort of a clarify and also uh, we affirm that well, one country to system is best for Hong Kong. And I believe that's exactly what Hong Kong what people believe. Yeah. Edward, yeah. Thank you so much for that, the Commerce Secretary of Hong Kong. We're counted down to the market open this Wednesday morning. Stay with us. We're back after this. We are halfway through the trading week, and that was the opening bell. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Zane Ashler, coming to you live from New York, and also the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. We are looking at a <coughs> excuse me, a higher open across the board for U.S. stocks as today's session gets underway. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 are closing in on records again after falling from records yesterday. Concern about the spread of the coronavirus in Asia has been weighing on sentiment. Shares of Delta, United, <coughs> excuse me, and American Airlines all fell sharply on Tuesday uh, on virus fears, but they are all higher in early trading today. Let's take a closer look at the markets now. I'm joined now by Tim Horsborough, the investment from the, the investment strategist at Invesco. Thank you so much for being with us. So just in terms of President Trump's speech today in Davos, Switzerland, the impromptu speech he gave before leaving to come back to Washington, EU tariffs uh, were front and centre. The president actually talked about the fact that he believes that the European Union is actually harder to do business with than China. He dangled the threat of tariffs. Um, how concerned is the market about that right now? You know what, I think when we look at the trade stance of the administration, that's certainly been an overarching concern, really over the last year or so as this trade war with China has developed. Now that we've got this phase one deal uh, and some forward progress, even if we don't have all the features in place that we looked for, uh, and the attention is turning to the EU, this certainly is a concern for markets. But so far, we haven't seen a big hit to sentiment, obviously, as, as markets are approaching all-time highs. So I think this is still mostly a negotiating tactic on, on the part of the Trump administration. Um, and then the president also talked about this idea of him already planning for phase two of the U.S.-China trade deal. What does the market hope that that uh, trade deal, that second phase of the trade deal will actually include? Because even though we had phase one signed, there are still many, many tariffs that are still in place. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that when we look at phase two, first and foremost, it would be lifting of the remaining tariffs, those that were stated to remain in place through really the end of 2020. So I think that was a bit of a disappointment in phase one and definitely something that we'd like to see in phase two. I think also phase two would have to tackle some of those harder issues, intellectual property, forced technology transfer, and, and, and some of the more fundamental uh, uh, sticking points in the trade relationship between the U.S. and China. So I think the, the progress will be slower and harder fought on that second phase. And just in terms of what is casting a shadow 
over the markets right now. It's interesting because you have massive political turbulence in Washington. You have the president being involved in this impeachment trial that could last God knows how long. Um, But at the same time, the market seemed to be shrugging that off and really focused on earnings season and the fact that, you know, 2019, we had a lackluster earnings season and this year appears to be much, much brighter. What are your thoughts and what the really what the market is really focused on uh, this year? Oh, absolutely. I think I think you hit the nail on the head when we're looking at market sentiment. We've got all of these negative headline risks, things like political turmoil or, or any concerns around trade. But but at the same time, markets have done quite well. And I think a lot of that is related to improving fundamentals in the U.S. economy. We had that growth scare really in August and September of 2019, followed by a reacceleration of U.S. growth back to trend. And I think we're seeing that now as earnings forecasts for 2020 are coming out and saying, look, we're projecting this to be more of a mid to high single digits type of earnings growth year, maybe six to eight percent. And, and that's the type of fundamental environment where stocks can power higher, maybe not at, to the same degree that you saw in 2019. But I think that's where that relative optimism is coming from, is, is the fundamentals underlying the market. Right. So we've got a strong uh, U.S. consumer. We've got the fact that interest rates are low. We've got receding economic risks. Given all of that, obviously, the environment is very ripe for stocks to continue going higher. But given all of that, what would you say was the major headwind, the major sort of cause cause for concern uh, going into 2020 for the markets? Well, I think to to take a step back and look at what was a big cause for concern at the start of last year, it was Fed policy. And I think one of the big shifts throughout 2019 that's really put uh, a more positive tone on uh, risk sentiment is around the Fed's shift in stance, both being patient at the beginning of 2019 and then ultimately cutting rates to to bring them more in line with uh, uh, what the potential for growth was in the U.S. economy. So I think if if there's one big risk in my mind, it would be a policy mistake from the Fed if, for instance, we start hearing more hawkish pronouncements uh, from uh, Fed policymakers or Chairman Powell about either keeping rates on hold or even raising rates. I think that's the type of environment where you could see a deterioration in sentiment. But other than that, again, when we look at those underlying fundamentals, as you pointed out, whether it's home building or manufacturing or employment or consumption here, all of those outlooks look quite strong at this point for the U.S. Right. Tim Horse wrote life for us there. Thank you so much. Time now for a look at our global movers. IBM shares are higher. The tech giant is reporting better than expected earnings and revenues and raising its 2020 guidance. Revenues grew for the first time in six quarters thanks to solid results from its cloud software divisions. Johnson & Johnson shares are lower, down about 1% or so. The pharmaceutical and consumer products company is reporting stronger than expected profits, but revenues missed expectations. And Netflix shares uh, at the bottom of your screen there have turned lower, down about 2%. Now, the streaming giant actually reported disappointing U.S. subscription growth in the fourth quarter. Its forward guidance was weak, but earnings and revenue beat expectations and international growth was strong. Netflix admits that Disney Plus and Apple TV and other streaming services are beginning to impact U.S. results. The big question is, how serious could it get? Frank Pilotta joins us live now. Uh, so, Frank, um, just walk us through this, because even though international subscribers for Netflix are growing pretty well, it's U.S. subscribers. That's where the trouble really is for them. It's not growing as quickly as they might hope. Just how strong is the competition from the likes of Disney and other streaming services? I think it's strong, but it's 
could potentially get stronger. Like, look at it this way. Uh, last night, they said they brought in about 420,000 U.S. subscribers. That's about 180,000 less than the 600,000 they were projecting. That's an issue. But look at it this way. Most of those services, Apple, Disney Plus, they launched right in the middle of the quarter, right in November. So the next quarter is going to be really, really interesting to not just look at the international and global growth, but really look at that U.S. growth. Are they going to lose subscribers? Are they going to have even more sluggish type of growth. And the other thing that's being kind of lost in translation here as well is they didn't just blame competition. They also blamed recent price changes. So it's a mixture of many things. The last three quarters have not been great for Netflix in the U.S., and it kind of continued last night. And we'll see if that kind of continues as more as Disney gets more of a stranglehold on the market. And Netflix has also changed the way or defined the way that they uh, they claim viewership, as in how do they measure whether or not someone has actually viewed an episode of a particular series? And that is if they have viewed it for longer than two minutes. Doesn't that inflate the numbers for them ever so slightly? I mean, it's not great. I mean, before it was they had to watch about 70 percent of a show to be counted. Now they have something called choose to watch, which all means, as you said, you have to watch for about two minutes. It's to show that you actually made a conscious choice to watch that show. And we'll see if they continually really uh, pump that up. They really pumped those numbers up in the earnings last night with the two minute only. But that being said, we kind of need to figure out how viewership and transparency with viewership numbers is going to work. It doesn't necessarily correlate between viewership and subscribers, so it doesn't really totally impact their stock, but it does matter. All right, Frank Plodder, Life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, you're watching First Move. Coming up, airports around the world step up health screenings amid fears the coronavirus will continue to spread. China authorities have confirmed the ninth coronavirus death and they are reporting well over 400 patients. Cases have also been reported in Thailand, South Korea, Japan and the United States. Chinese experts established this week that the virus could be spread by human to human transmission. A short time ago, Hong Kong's chief top executive confirmed the first case of coronavirus. Speaking in Davos, she said the territory was implementing lessons learned during the SARS outbreak. We have been uh, putting um, ourselves on a very highly uh, vigilant system because we learned from the past. I'm sure you still remember Hong Kong handling the SARS. Now, a couple of hours ago, um, Hong Kong health authorities have just announced that we have the first case of highly suspicious uh, infection in Hong Kong um, from a passenger uh, from Wuhan or from Wuhan via another city coming to Hong Kong. So this system, which has been put in place for almost three weeks now, will be put into actual action. Um, I have asked my health colleagues to be really on the guard because uh, public health is so very important to the community. And with this uh, rapid flow of people across the border, it makes Hong Kong uh, even more vulnerable should this uh, disease spread. Airports across the globe have increased screening for the virus as officials race to contain it. The Lunar New Year holiday is complicating efforts in China. It is the largest human migration on Earth. Paula Newton joins us live now. So, Paula, we know that there are airports around the globe that now have more health screenings uh, 
quarantine procedures as well because of the coronavirus and the fears about it spreading. What can passengers leaving Wuhan, traveling to other parts of the world, particularly the United States, expect once they get to airports in this country? Yeah, and not just the United States, Zane, although in the U.S. the CDC has confirmed the one case. I mean, look, whether it's here in Canada, in the United States, in Europe, they will be asked questions about how they're feeling. Temperature is going to be a big deal. And it's very pertinent point, because when we talk about the Lunar New Year, Zane, we're talking about, you know, imagine a Christmas holiday in Europe or North America, and all those travelers that will be taking those trips, not just throughout Asia, of course, but also to Europe and North America. So you're talking about really taking a close look at your temperature. How are you feeling? The other complicating factor is flu season, right? It's hard. Sometimes you have the flu. It can be masked as um, uh, the coronavirus. The issue here is that it is much different than it was in SARS in 2003. Health officials I've spoken to are saying, look, immediately this time, Zane, uh, China published the genetic sequence of this. They can see it in their labs. And that is a good thing in terms of trying to identify it. If you are traveling, what they want travelers to do is, again, pay attention. Where have you been? What is also key, Zane, of course, is that human-to-human transition. Now, the chief public health officer here in Canada, and I remind everyone, Canada was ground zero outside of Asia for SARS. There were many lessons learned here. What is key? How extensive is that human-to-human transition? That is going to be a key question for the World Health Organization as they meet right now to try and determine whether or not this does lead to some kind of international concern in terms of health. And Zane, to put a fine point on it, uh, You know, when we have Lunar New Year, obviously it will impact businesses uh, as well. Certainly hotels, airlines keeping a close eye on this. Again, SARS did impact GDP throughout several countries, including Canada. And that is what officials are looking at very closely, not just people's health, uh, but also to not spread panic, right? Uh, And that's why it's a very tough decision right now in the WTO to look at this virus and, and see if they really do need to declare that health emergency. Paula Newton, live for us there. Thank you so much. A programming note for you. Prince Charles is speaking exclusively to our Max Foster at the World Economic Forum in Davos. That will air next hour at 10 a.m. New York time, 3 p.m. London time, right here on CNN. Also in Davos, President Trump called Boeing a very disappointing company after its troubles with a 737 MAX airliner. The president was speaking on CNBC later in a news, news conference. He had this to say. Boeing has not had a, a good time of it. They have, uh, they have, uh, they better start recovering fast. I hope they do. They have some good people in there now. They have great people in the company, but they have some good people leading it now. So hopefully that'll be taken care of. The president's comments come as Boeing executives now expect the MAX won't be approved to fly until the middle of this year. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, just walk us through some of the trouble that Boeing has had over the past uh, several months, uh, in addition to obviously those crashes over a year ago. But just walk us through why the recertification process is taking much longer than anticipated. Yeah, Zane, it now looks like it'll stretch beyond 15 months, far longer than anyone had expected when this plane was first grounded. It all started, of course, with the MCAS anti-stall software system that is being widely linked uh, to the two crashes, which killed some 346 people. That fix uh, has taken longer than expected. And while they've been scrutinizing the plane, Zane, other issues have come to light. There was uh, you know, another problem revealed with the computer system. The New York Times revealed a potential problem with the wiring uh, affecting the tail of the 737 MAX. 
Max earlier this month. So there are other issues beyond that software fix that they are now grappling with. Don't forget, of course, uh, that, that also means that the manual has to be updated. Flight uh, training has to be updated. Boeing has now recommended uh, that all pilots need to go through the simulator. A big turnaround for the company. That also uh, affects the timeline. And this isn't just about Boeing. This is about the Federal Aviation Administration, the U.S. regulator charged with certifying this plane. Their reputation is at stake here, too. They need to be seen not to be rushing this. But this delay uh, is a big deal for the airlines. This could mean that they now go through the peak summer flying season without these planes. Uh, and it raises questions as well for Boeing about the production stoppage of the 737 MAX, which began this month. Will they then have to extend that day? So just, just walk us through, obviously, Boeing now has a new CEO, David Calhoun. Just walk us through what his strategy is going forward. Yeah, David Calhoun, barely 10 days into the job, saying he's already uh, been to the White House and been thanked by the president. He's now been criticized, or his company, uh, by the president. He's seen the, the stock uh, halted yesterday uh, on this news. But clearly, this is him trying to, to prove that this is a new era of transparency for Boeing and that he is the man to repair the relationship with the Federal Aviation Administration, which is widely believed to have broken down towards the end of last year because of Boeing's overly optimistic uh, estimates of when the plane would be recertified. And you can see this in the statement. It begins, uh, you know, he says uh, the FAA and other global regulators, it's up to them to determine when the plane uh, will return to the skies. And he says that they are basing this, this estimate now, the middle of 2020, on their experience with this certification process so far. So there's a lot of humility in the statement, a lot of reverence towards the regulators. So I think that is what he's trying to prove today. Calhoun is also going to be holding a call later with reporters. So I think all of this sort of smacks of this new era of transparency from Boeing. Claire Sebastian, thank you. All right, coming up here on First Move, we'll have all the latest from Davos as President Trump head, <coughs> heads back to Washington. <coughs> President Trump has left Davos. He's heading back to Washington after using the platform at the World Economic Forum to attack the impeachment trial and tout the U.S. economy and potential trade deals. Julia Chatley is joining us live now from Davos. Uh, the president also talked about reforming the WTO and also slapping tariffs on the EU as well. Take it away, Julia. I know. We've heard it all before, though, Zane, haven't we? Um, I'm joined by Richard Kress as well. I want to bring him. Zane was just saying he's talked to Mr. President Trump, has talked about slapping Europe with tariffs, with auto tariffs. He's itching to do it. And reform of the WTO. Let's not forget that one as well. That was interesting because he had managed to get the DG on board. Now, look, Robert Azvedo clearly knows that there needs to be reform. He knows there Preaching needs to be a reform, but, but, but for him to be standing next to the president, wrapping himself, there will be critics in the WTO who will say, why are you giving succor to the man who has been so, uh, so, so rude and so, so destructive to the WTO. But we could use other examples. The WTO, we could use NATO. They all end up agreeing with him that people aren't paying enough money could, or reforms yeah, required, yeah. quite and, frankly. And that is the genius of the yes, president. He, China. He Look got, at all of these things. Yeah, he managed to get the DG to wrap himself in the same thing. I think, by the way, yes. that President Trump cannot wait to put some sort of tariffs on Europe in some shape or form. He's waiting for the excuse. Does it 
achieve a deal of sorts in some form, some degree of better or less asymmetry, quite frankly, because that was the word we've used with China. No one else tackled China and look what he's achieved. Well, like it or not, it's a move forward. It's a move forward, but come on, let's not over-egg that pudding on the on phase one. Come on. Um, surely you've still got, so, you, know, you haven't taken your blinkers off completely on that one. Uh, no, I think the, trying to get a rise. Yeah, you succeeded. You succeeded. No, I think, look, I think the really interesting issue here is going to be how far Europe will accommodate right. to, to avoid auto tariffs. But my gut is he loves tariffs. He talks about them. He talks about the benefit of them. He talks about how much money he's making off them. He would love to do the same with Europe. Absolutely. And he didn't take potential Iraqi tariffs off the table as well. No. Sanctions on Iraq, the Iraqis as I don't well. see that he's actually reversed much on anything. No. The only tariffs he's reversed are those very small ones uh, that were coming in just now by 50%. But the bulk of China tariffs remain and the, the average is 19 to 20%. And what's quite fascinating, just to wrap this all up, no. is that the collateral damage of those tariffs on the global economy is not being spoken about because it may not be as, because right. it may not be as bad as we first thought. The numbers may not be as dramatic. I tell you, why I'm much more concerned about is this snow, which is a lot more dangerous than it looks. If I slide, I'll slide. Into yeah, you. I know, and I'll go. And if I slide, it'll be down in the trees before you know it. <laughs> What I tell you? I'm exhausted. It's exhausting. You can catch me and then we'll just both make snowmen down. Snow angels. I'll pay, We're off. I'll pay good money to see mum do a snow angel. <laughs> yeah, you haven't got enough money for that, my friend. Back to you, Zane. If Go on, Julia, do it. Do it. Oh, I don't know. You wait till Friday. <laughs> Go on, Julia, you should. I'll consider it for Friday. <laughs> All right, Julia Chatterley, Richard Press, <laughs> thank you both check. so much. To for charity. entertaining four minutes. All right. Uh, stay with CNN. Prince Charles is speaking exclusively to our Max Foster at the World Economic Forum in Davos. That will air next hour, 10 a.m. New York time, 3 p.m. London time, right here on CNN. And that is it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Connect the world with our Linda Kincaid. It starts right after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.